You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 7th of February. 20 years since Facebook was created, we decided to take a look at how social media is evolving from a private space to a public arena and how we as users are reacting. We spoke to media lecturer Stephen King. Meanwhile, Facebook's owner Meta says it will be introducing technology to detect and label images generated by artificial intelligence. But can it work? We found out with not one, but two experts, including digital media professor Axel Bruns and creative technologist Rodolfo Ocampo. Meanwhile, could a 100-kilometre-long underwater curtain be used to shield Antarctic glaciers from melting and prevent catastrophic flooding elsewhere. We asked glaciologist John Moore from Lapland University to give us the lowdown. And we took a look at the ongoing impact of the Red Sea shipping crisis on domestic shipments as residents relocating this summer start to book their move. We talked prices and freight times with Stefania Sierra from DASA International Movers. Plus, we are getting a new bridge here in Dubai. That's going to be between Sheikhzayed Road and Dubai Harbour. Hamid Al-Shehi, he's Director of Roads for Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority, explained why they picked that particular area. And a new study is coming out suggesting money doesn't make you happy. Professor Eric Galbraith studies Indigenous people and he talked us through his research. Facebook turned 20. It actually happened on Sunday. I wanted to do the topic on Monday, but too much happened locally. Um, we're sort of going to look at how it's changed over the last 20 years. Do you remember what you used to use it for? I'd like you to sort of cast your mind back to the heady days when you used to sort of change your Facebook, you know, your status update. And did you used to poke people? I think you did. You could poke people on Facebook, didn't you? <laughs> get away with that anyway um let's let's cast our mind back and while you do that i'm going to play you a clip of a young mark zuckerberg who sat down with cnbc back in 2004 to discuss the facebook this was in the early days of his company what is the facebook exactly it's an online directory that connects people through universities and colleges through their social networks there you sign on you make a profile about yourself by answering some questions entering some information such as your concentration or major at school, contact information of what books you like, movies, and most importantly, who your friends are. And then you can browse around, just check out people's online identities and see how people portray themselves and just find some interesting information about people. I think it's changed beyond recognition. That's my theory. When I go onto Facebook now, it just irritates me. I don't see anything from my friends. No one does status updates anymore. You just see a, frankly, a sort of, I guess you get news stories or videos of people sort of slightly overexcited people doing videos of cooking or, you know, whatever the algorithm thinks I want to look at, you know, according to my my profile. By the way, I have no interest in cooking at all. Um, But yeah, I mean, even that algorithm has changed how social media works because you don't need to like anything anymore. All you need to do is just slightly pause when you look at something and the algorithm thinks, oh, they like that. And then you get fed similar material. So from my point of view, it's become very anodyne, repetitive and annoying. And I just don't get the status updates from my friends that I used to get that I'd love to still use it for because obviously I'm an expat and I'd like to stay in touch with friends back home. And that just got us thinking about how it's changed and what that means for both us as a community, but also Facebook as a company. And in a year when half the world is going to the polls, how much, you know, those social media companies will influence voters. Now, joined in the studio by an expert, Stephen King teaches across three media programs at Middlesex University, Dubai. He does journalism and creative writing, advertising, PR and branding. So he's definitely the right person to talk to about this. Stephen, tell me, has the way in which we use social media evolved? It's not just me, is it? You know, everyone has changed. Absolutely. And I think if you listen to what Mark Zuckerberg just said in that clip, when Facebook first started, the promise was to connect with people who 
you knew or had some kind of faint relationship with either through your university or through your friendship group or your, through, through your family. And that uh, was a great initial burst for people to sign up. After that, we had this fantastic uh, community that created a, a community of helpful strangers that were there on demand, that would provide answers to any problem you had from whether you were cooking and you needed a, a, a new way of, of making a cake without baking soda or you were in some kind of legal problem and you needed some advice. There was a huge, uh, useful um, network of people out there who were on demand and for free. Unfortunately, that has transformed and in many cases has become a, a swamp of toxic trolls uh, and that potentially puts people off uh, engaging or posting as much as, as they had in the past, uh, not being sure who is going to receive their content uh, and having a very real risk of that content being misused or receiving some negative comments which uh, people just don't need anymore they just don't want it uh, and so i think uh, in the article that uh, we've been uh, looking at with regards to uh, meta's recent fantastic results uh, it shows uh, a trans transformation of the online experience away from massively public uh, social networks to more uh, private curated groups um, of people of, of common interests, which are uh, being moderated by, uh, by responsible people, or at least we hope they are. I mean, that's what's so interesting is that at first there was this flurry, this real desire to share with your friends on Facebook. And then you suddenly realized that you weren't just sharing with your friends and all of these sort of wider issues around privacy cropped up. Do you think that that is why it started to evolve? That's why it started to change? I, I think they are certain parts of the puzzle. I mean, you'd have to produce some proper research to prove causality. But if we look right at the beginning, when you were talking about uh, being able to poke each other, there was also the, the phenomenon of Farmville. Uh, which was what everyone used to do on Facebook. Used oh, it was a game, wasn't the it? A computer game where oh gosh, you created your own little environment and your friends would go from each one's farm to water plants and perform jobs and talk to each other. So where we are today with the current WhatsApp communities is effectively just a more advanced version of, of Farmville, which was one of the most popular things back in the day that keeps coming back up on my uh, memories feed on, on all my talks. So, yes, there's certainly this uh, negativity, which is having a, an impact, a cancel culture, uh, which people are seeing against celebrities, but also young people um, are absolutely fearing that they themselves will be cancelled amongst their peer groups. And so that is, uh, in my observation, being uh, with young people, uh, uh, resulting in less sharing at, at, uh, in public environments. And if young people uh, stop, then you know that, that becomes a trend that will continue. So uh, there is that aspect. I think there's another aspect of where the social media platforms have changed their algorithms, which means you get fewer likes, therefore you get fewer positive uh, endorphins from people interacting with your content. So the, the positive has, has fallen out because of the technology and whatever is, is being done. And the risk of negativity has increased. So it, the, the balance there is, is probably what is uh, part of the whole equation. I am looking through my Facebook feed now. I, I hope you didn't think I was, I was being rude. Nope. But it starts with an update from my sister, then an advert, then another update, then another advert, uh, and then another advert. I mean, literally, it just goes, it, it, I get one update from a friend, maybe a couple of pictures, and then it's straight into an ad. And it makes me realize, no wonder I don't want to use it if every other post is just a video advert that immediately starts playing, whether I like it or not, it just starts playing at me. Mm. And I mean, that is enough to put me, okay, fine. No, it literally, it just goes post advert, post advert. And so few people are actually using it now to actually say what they're doing. I got mildly distracted for a moment. Now. I mean, it does know how to distract you, that's for sure. I mean, what does it mean for Facebook's business model that we're no longer user to actually share information with each other? 
so Facebook is just one application within the Meta family, and we can see uh, that their other channels are, are continuing to grow. WhatsApp mm. is becoming huge for marketing and for sales, for customer care, uh, for integration with CRM systems. So maybe Facebook might decline. It's still going strong in certain parts of the world, and they're. Their uh, financial results are continuing to uh, outperform and, and impress. Uh, so I, I don't see anything which is going to immediately affect. Um, I think we'll see other uh, parts of the face of the Meta family uh, rising, and it's a, it's a, it's a it was a Boston matrix where they have different uh, products which will will rise and which will be their cash cows. Uh, they are investing heavily in the. Uh, the VR and AI field, uh, they're predicting and they're telling their investors that there's going to be meaningful expenses in this field as perhaps they're trying to catch up with Apple uh, and the ProVision. And the, this kind of environment is uh, is where they, they're obviously seeing the, that their uh, future revenues are going to lie. Um, and I don't think there's a problem with Meta, the, the stock market would, would have said otherwise. Um, I think they've got very good portfolio of products and services and um you know they, they're gonna they're gonna continue expanding as in the way that they have done in the past really interesting stuff stephen king thank you so much for joining us in the studio stephen teaches across three media programs at middlesex university dubai's campus thank you very much indeed for your time and i'm glad you ended there on artificial intelligence because that is actually going to be the focus for our next interview because overnight there's been an announcement from meta which is the owner of facebook instagram and threads they say that they are going to introduce technology that will detect and label images that are generated by other companies' AI. They already do it for their own images, but they're now going to be able to do it for other companies' artificially intelligence-generated images. We're going to find out about the realities of that, whether or not it will work uh, in the coming minutes. We're going to speak to Axel Brunt, who's a professor in the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland University. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. And we are continuing our conversation now about the evolution of social media. Big topic on the program today. Um, and we'll carry on because Meta has just announced that it's going to be introducing new tech that will detect and label images that are generated by other companies' AI. Now, that's an in- important distinguishing sort of feature there because um, Meta already labels AI images generated by its own systems. But this will be a new step and you'll find find it eventually on Facebook, Instagram and threads. Um, You know, they are still building the new tech. um, But in a blog written by the senior executive, Sir Nick Clegg, who works for Meta, he says he hopes that it'll create momentum for the industry to tackle AI fakery. Let's find out more. Let's get some reaction. I'm joined now by Axel Brunt, who's a professor in the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Thank you so much for joining us on the line, Axel. Good to see you. Tell me, what's your initial reaction to this sort of quite fresh announcement? Well, thank you and good to speak to you. Um, To me, this is quite an optimistic approach. Um, It's very difficult, ultimately, to uh, reliably detect AI-generated imagery. Um, I would even be surprised if Facebook will always, or Meta will always be able to detect um, the imagery created by its own tools once that perhaps has been further um, photoshopped or in other ways uh, worked on. Um, the, The very purpose of these tools is, of course, to generate realistic images, and uh, um, there there isn't any kind of um, agreed standard for watermarking or otherwise identifying that an image has been AI-generated. And even if there was, of course, um, anyone who's determined to, to spread these images and pass them off as real um, would very quickly uh, find workarounds and find ways to cut out these sorts of watermarks uh, from any AI-generated images. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't really see this work particularly well. Uh, there may be some telltale, telltale signs in unaltered images that other AI tools generate, but um, yeah, anyone who, who really wants to will find a way to, to remove those. That's so interesting because I always thought that obviously for the layman, for, for me, 
I mean, I could probably look up how to, you know, see the back end of a picture, you know, look at look at the tech that's behind it, the the address that's behind it and things like that. But I always presumed that if you were techie, that you could do that, that there was behind any image, there was a sort of whole message board effectively that showed where it had been, where it had come from and all of that type of thing. But that's not the case necessarily. Not necessarily, no. And and really where we have this sort of information is often actually more in, in you know, actual real images generated by, by cameras, mobile phones and so on, where there is this uh, what's called EXIF information, which basically provides information on the device it was taken on and various other settings. And that, of course, can be very easily cut out as well. Um, so in, in some cases, yes, we will have uh, perhaps some information on the provenance of a particular image, where it came from, but uh, really anyone worth their salt is is very easily able to remove that kind of information. And uh, many of the AI tools that we're now seeing that are really just consumer grade, they're not even very specialized, um, that, that generate some often quite realistic images, um, uh, don't really provide any kind of additional information, insert any additional information uh, that identifies the images as, as AI generated. Um, and uh, yeah, so there, there, there isn't any any standard or any any requirement really to to include uh, any of this kind of content without ai being able to detect fake imagery what do you think is going to happen uh, uh, you know going forward you know do you think we're we're literally just going to stop believing our eyes to some extent yes and uh, to be Perfectly fair, though, this is not something that necessarily only started with AI. We've had, of course, over the past few decades, some very well-publicized scandals where even press photos have been altered or taken out of context uh, or in some other way. Well, the, the, the term is, I guess, Photoshopping now um, because so many pe- people are using Adobe Photoshop to, to do this sort of work. But we've had so many cases where, of course, even without AI, existing images have been altered in some form uh, to be passed off and maybe represented something that isn't actually on the images or in some other way being being yeah, mis, misrepresented, taken out of context. Um, AI really turbocharges this, I guess, um, uh, by making it so much easier to generate photorealistic images or, uh, and that's perhaps the more important part also, to take existing images and then modify them further based on whatever prompt it is given. Um, so uh, that's is simply really an extension of what we've already seen well before the AI uh, influx, but it is now so much more easily possible, and uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, so much so much more possible for for so many more people as well. So really, anyone could go and generate uh, these sorts of images very easily and, and and spread them around. And and yes, I think it will mean that a lot of us will be very cautious about any kind of images that we see. Um, unless perhaps they are clearly coming from an authoritative source, from a respected news organization or other uh, sources whom we place some trust in. Such an interesting topic. Um, Really, really fascinating to hear how this industry is sort of evolving and and shifting. And obviously, in a a year when we've got so many uh, national elections going on and, you know, imagery and deep fakes can be used to influence elections, uh, it is fascinating to see how things are changing. Uh, possibly, uh, if you want to get quite overexcited, you could say potentially uh, threatening democracies around the world. Um, Axel Bruns, a, presser, a pleasure to speak to you, Professor there of Digital Media Research at the Queensland, Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, obviously, joining us uh, in the afternoon from Australia. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Hello there, you're listening here to The Agenda and we're going to take a look now at a news that broke overnight because Meta has just announced that it's going to be introducing special tech that will detect and label images that are generated by AI. Now, it's something that it already does for its own imagery. You know, there's a a label on it already if you see it on Facebook or Instagram. Um, But they're now going to create this tech that will label images generated by other companies. And when it's ready, because it's not ready yet, it's going to be on Facebook, Instagram and threads. Now, it was announced in a blog post written by a senior executive at Meta called Sir Nick Clegg. And he said that he hopes that the new tech 
which is still being built, will create momentum for the industry to tackle AI fakery. Now, it's a really important issue, in particular this year. We've already heard of examples of deep fakes being used to influence elections. We talked about it um, with reference to Bangladesh. I, I think it's also started to become quite a hot topic in the United States as well. But we've got 40 countries this year, at least 40 countries, with big elections. And of course, everyone involved in those elections is trying to win and they are quite happy to use every single tool at their disposal. But we wanted to find out a little bit about whether this tech, if when it's, when it's invented, is realistic, whether it'll actually work. So earlier I spoke to Rodolfo Ocampo. He's a creative technologist. He's a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales, where he's focusing on how humans and artificial intelligence can collaborate, particularly in the creative field of art, for example. And he gave me his reaction to this latest news. I think it's important because we have an election cycle coming up in many countries, you know, the United States, Mexico included. And I think it's important to know when an image, a deep fake, for example, was generated with AI. So I think it's a it's an important strategy. And it's also feasible because the technology right now in terms of AI image generation is still detectable. So you can use other AI image systems to detect if something was generated with AI. It's not 100% accurate, but you can detect it. So it's feasible and it's important. Okay, so that's the short term. How about in the long term? It's not feasible. The very nature of AI generation systems is that they want to fool DEI in a way. Actually, there's there's two main image generation systems. One is called Generative Adversarial Networks. So as the name implies, is two networks. They're kind of like competing against each other. One is a discriminator and the other one is a generator. So one generates images and the other one tries to discriminate if it was generated by an AI or not, essentially. So it's a, it's kind of like an arm answer is between two neural networks trying to you know compete with each other. So the very nature of AI image systems is, is, is this kind of like deceit in a way. The current AI image systems that we see that you can prompt use something called diffusion models, which is a different architecture, but at the end of the day, it's a similar principle. It's trying to generate something that adjusts to the text that you pass it and generate something that could be there, essentially. So they are getting better literally by the day, image generation systems. Like if you look back in two years ago, you could very easily tell that it was AI generated. It was horrible. It, it was creepy. And like in, in a year, then you could generate photorealistic things. And then, you know, but with like weird hands and like still weird faces. But now like it's come to a point in which it's very hard for the human eye to detect an AI system can detect it because there's ways of spotting very, very detailed inaccuracies. And there's also other approaches. For example, Facebook talks about the fact that, you know, they have an image generation system. They're going to kind of like include an invisible watermark. So their image systems are going to be able to, to tell that it was image generated. So what will we do in the future then if, you know, even yeah. artificial intelligence can't tell if something is artificially generated? Yeah, that's the biggest question. I think in the short term, labeling is important. In the long term, for me, the answer is perhaps not technical. Perhaps the answer is more in a second degree of action in terms of reasoning abilities and, and cognitive abilities of people. We have a similar problem with fake news. You know, you can write a very plausible news article, put it on Facebook, and, you know, it gets massive diffusion. It's very hard to fact check, especially stuff, you know, around like conspiracy theories that they just like dubious articles and, and like put them together in like feasible ways that they construct a logical argument. It's technically not fake, but it's, it's wrong. The conclusion that they're arriving to and a lot of conspiracy theories that we see right now are actually just due to, to fallacies, to mistakes. So I think something similar, you know, taking the example of fake news and misinformation, I think something similar we can learn from that. Taking that example, and the problem there is that people commit uh, mistakes in reasoning due to our cognitive biases, the tendency to, to follow the social reasoning of your in-group and so on. So I think looking into cognitive skills for people to be able to reason, okay, if they see an image, it might be plausible, but then work on the critical skepticism to then research more if it's feasible what they're seeing in the image i mean ultimately if everything on instagram and facebook ends up 
being AI generated? You know, if you can't really trust what you see in the future, do you think that ultimately people will stop using those platforms? That's ultimately a question of trust. And it's also at the, at the center of some of our biggest political problems, lack of trust, erosion of trust. So definitely, I think as we see more image generated content in terms of when it's trying to be real, and then you see these labels that are going to get them wrong a lot of the time, that's going to erode trust. So probably one of the effects is that people are not going to use these platforms. Maybe another effect is just erosion of trust and just moving towards that direction that we're already moving towards. I think ultimately, I don't know if people are going to be leaving those platforms because of that reason. Thinking in medium term, I think a lot of these platforms are going to generate AI-generated content themselves. Just kind of following the economics of what they do is they try to maximize your attention, you know, to maximize that revenue. So if they are able to generate very personalized, addictive content for you only, then it's likely they're going to do that. So we may see a move towards platforms like YouTube, Instagram, Spotify, that a large part of their content is generated by the platform itself, just to keep you longer on the platform and generate something personalized for you. So I think on the contrary, they're going to leverage that to increase engagement on these platforms. Rodolfo Ocampo there, a creative technologist and PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales. I would love to get your reaction to that conversation, whether or not you can trust what your eyes see on the internet, whether you use your own, I suppose, sort of circumspect, whether you're a cynic. I mean, I'm certainly a cynic. I don't believe anything I see online anymore. You're listening to The Agenda now, and I have a, a very intriguing idea to talk to you about now. And I think instinctively you'll think, that'll never work. I have to admit, that was my initial thought, because scientists are working on a plan to prevent Antarctic glaciers from melting. But it is definitely not what you would think. They want to build an, a set of giant underwater curtains to prevent the warm water from reaching the ice sheets. Uh, And it's undisputable that something needs to be done because ice in the polar regions is melting at record rates. And there are concerns that, excuse me, obviously it could lead to sea levels rising sharply around the rest of the world. Um, So something needs to be done. But are curtains the answer? Uh, Let's find out. Um, We're going to discuss the feasibility of a project like this with the glaciologist, Professor John Moore from the Arctic Centre at Lapland University, which sounds like something you'd hear in a fairy tale. Um, But Professor Moore, thanks for joining us on the line. Thank you for inviting me. I hope uh, it's a clear line. (laughs) It's a lovely clear line. Thank you very much indeed. Now tell me, uh, underwater curtains, uh, is this even conceivable? Yes, uh, we think so. We we actually do have uh, real experts in in deep sea engineering. There's a Norwegian company that have installed a lot of uh, oil rigs in the North Sea and places like that that really know how to work in deep water. They tell us that... uh, If we wanted to do this in a normal ocean instead of one in the polar regions with all the icebergs and things like that, we could basically start tomorrow. There is no unobtainium or any strange science fiction materials. This is all just pretty standard construction stuff at a huge scale. Don't get me wrong. This would probably be the largest engineering project that humanity has ever undertaken. But this is the level We are where we are, you know, it's a gigantic problem and we need uh, imaginative solutions. If these curtains were built, undoubtedly they would be stopping the warm water from reaching the glaciers, at least that's the idea. But would it not be a complete disaster environmentally as far as sort of animals trying to get from place to place, for example? Well, we don't think so because the curtains are not blocking the entire depth of the water. They would be uh, sticking up about 100 metres from the bottom of the sea, but they would still be 500 or 400 metres above that. And fish and whales and things can swim, of course. They swim up and down over mountains and, and any obstructions. And it wouldn't be a perfectly solid barrier there would be it's more like a kind of a net so you would slow down the the water so there would still be uh, some porosity that things can go through 
tell me, why is it down low? Um, I, might, I mean, as you can tell, rudimentary biology and physics here from, from your presenter. Um, but I thought warm water wrote, I thought warm went up and cold went down. Oh, well, the thing is that in the ocean, what determines the density is the amount of salt as well as the temperature. So the warm, the warm water is also very salty and that makes it at the bottom of the sea. Oh, that's interesting. OK, so these um, underwater curtains would actually be fastened to the seabed. Fastened to the seabeds and floating with um, things like uh, fiberglass uh, pipes, basically. So just filled with air. Have you had any pickup um, from people who, you know, from, from countries, I suppose, because you'd need a country to, to finance this plan? Uh, yes, the, everything in Antarctica is done through the Antarctic Treaty system. So we we are in Scandinavia and we are in, uh, working closely with Norwegians and Finnish uh, groups. It's not official policy at this point. There's a lot of research. We wouldn't be starting tomorrow. Uh, there's a lot of um, social acceptability and uh, and policy things that has to be gone through first. And finance of course. The, the benefits mostly would be in the global south, but those guys wouldn't be paying the bill for this. Really interesting. And like you say, uh, the world is looking for blue sky thinking, innovative ideas, uh, and that is what we're going to need to manage the massive climate crisis that we're currently facing. Professor John Moore, glaciologist from the Arctic Centre at Lapland University. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It's a fascinating idea uh, and uh, well, let, uh, certainly a story we'll be following from now on. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so as you can imagine here uh, on Dubai Eye, we have been keeping a very close eye on the situation in the Red Sea. And despite the efforts of a US coalition of naval forces from around the world, plus those targeted strikes on Houthi forces, attacks on international shipping are still causing a great deal of disruption to the shipping routes up from Asia and the Middle East through to Europe because they used to go through the Red Sea. But apparently now eight of the 10 largest container liners uh, and they control nearly two thirds of global shipping capacity are now avoiding that route altogether. That means that most of them are traveling around Africa. That adds about 10 to 14 days journey time and it is significantly increasing cost. In fact, as far as we can tell, um, and we're about to get an expert in the studio to talk about it, it looks like they've tripled since November. Um and just to give you a sense uh, of how big a deal this is, how big a disruption this is, about a third of global container traffic in the whole wide world passes through this stretch. So obviously, the Business Breakfast has been talking about oil prices and, you know, big trade issues and inflation and, you know, the big macroeconomic ideas. We're going to take it a little bit more fundamental. You know, what does it actually mean for you and me on a day-to-day -day basis? And if you're moving countries, it means a great deal. Um, but let's find out exactly how much it means. We're going to hear first from Hattie. She recently sent her possessions home from D Dubai and faced delays. We moved back from Dubai at the beginning of December, having packed up all our kit to be shipped back overseas uh, from Dubai to the UK about two months earlier. And we had scheduled a delivery date back in the UK on the 28th of December. And what actually happened in reality is the kit turned up in mid-January, which meant that everything that had been pre-bought and pre-packed ready for the children's start of school didn't obviously arrive in time. So new school shoes, which were in the in the luggage, had to be rebought. all of their stationery, all of the clothing, etc. And it just also meant that trying to live off a shoestring and out of a cardboard box for an extra three weeks was just, you know, that much more problematic with everyone being back at school and return to work, etc. So we don't actually know what happened to the cargo, whether it was rerouted or whether it was held up in the Suez Canal and then just got delayed. But yeah, it, it resulted in almost a month's delay. 
So is this typical? Well, I'm joined now by Stefania Sierra. She is general manager for DASA International Movers. Stefania, I've got an anxiety there. Am I saying that right? Is it day? Yes. Yeah, I am. Oh, good. It's important to get people's job titles right. Okay, so Stefania, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's lovely. And we heard about that's just one example of, I'm sure, many. What is the situation at the moment from your perspective as a domestic shipper? The situation is very much um, unchanged, if not worse, since the last time we spoke. Uh, Delays are now in the region of about a month and freight has increased 300 to 400 percent, depending on the lanes. Um, Not just a portion of the freight, but um, shipping lines are facing additional charges because uh, with longer transit, they have to pay more salaries. There's more petrol to run the vessels and... um, Sometimes they need to call into additional ports. And every time you call into a port, there is obviously there is delay, but there's also poor charges to pay. So uh, shipping lines are adding fees onto uh, every booking they accept. Uh, but another, uh, another issue with the delays is that um, the shipping lines have a duty towards the supply chain, not to stop companies and manufacturers. So... Somehow we have seen that the priority goes with the commercial cargo, not with the personal effect. So when you send your container off on a ship, it's not just got everyone's moving stuff on it. I mean, obviously it does. It doesn't, yeah, I hadn't even really considered it. <laughs> because cars, these are enormous. There's um, raw material. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's wood, everything. wood, steel, I mean, everything. The, so the, I think because companies faced these issues during COVID, now they're become more aware. So manufacturers are trying to push out whatever they produce, not to, uh, f- not to have a full warehouse and then uh, to stop the, the production. And buyers are buying not to, not to find themselves in a situation where they don't have raw material or where they cannot sell. So I think there's the... Um, the companies are the ones that are also putting pressure on the shipping market. Okay, so we always have a bit of a pre-summer rush, don't we, with people? Well, we always have a summer rush where yes. people basically leave. They, everyone seems to relocate during the summer. Because schools are closed. Precisely, yes. yes. And it means that you can start your new school year with your kids in the new country, wherever it is that you're going. So. How are bookings looking for you at the moment? Do people start making their summer bookings now? Yes, people are starting to make in summer booking now and they're absolutely right to start planning now. Uh, our suggestion would be uh, you can plan a date, you can reserve space with your moving company to avoid uh, us not having availability, uh, but do not uh, expect to have a fixed price and a confirmed price. Because really? If, yeah, freight, freight is fluctuating. So companies can tell you how much is it going to cost you today. It could be that tomorrow the situation is resolved. And then in a spam of a month or two, your freight will go down. But it also could be that uh, it's going to get worse and then your freight will go up. It is slightly crazy to think that while you're packing up your your pants, basically, that a massive geopolitical issue is going to have that big an impact on, you know, when things arrive home and, and how much it's going to cost you. As far as as far as those costs at the moment, how much more is it looking? Is it is it three times more? Even four times more, depending wow. on the lanes. Wow, that is that hurts. That's going to hurt people's budget. And, and how about timing about you said about a month? About delay. a month. But the the issue is not just the additional transit time. The issue is to find a container because this situation will bring to an imbalance worldwide um, where there will be ports with uh, a surplus of containers and there will be ports with goods waiting to be loaded because they don't have containers. So uh, we might not be able to find an empty container to load your goods on the day that we hope for. <laughs> I'm so pleased I'm not moving this side. This is the type of thing that even even hearing about it makes but me if tense. You, if I you, get trust, tense you have to trust your moving company. We have storages, we have warehouses. Uh, if we cannot load uh, your goods, uh, we won't leave them, obviously, uh, at home. We'll just take them to our warehouse. So you can plan when you're leaving your house, but don't uh, count on the day you're receiving your goods. Everyone is doing their best with the current situation and there's nothing no one can do to influence. 
whenever the container is going to sail or not. Well, along those lines, could you choose, for example, a shipping company that still is going through the Red Sea? At the moment, there's no one. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, well, that's, that's a succinct <laughs> answer. Um, I and not, mean, not all shipping lines accept personal effects. Oh, really? Oh, I hadn't yeah. realised that. Um, I mean, it feels almost uh, silly to ask this question, but I mean, is there any end in sight? You know, if the situation was resolved, if the attacks stopped and ships, shipping companies were certain that their boats were going to be safe to go through the Red Sea and therefore the Suez Canal, how quickly would things return to normal? I think it would be a couple of months. Still. So basically, if you're going home this summer, you are going to be affected. Where are we now? February, March, April. Oh, no, maybe. Maybe not if you're going July, August. Yeah. But but maybe, yes. So just don't don't keep your hopes too high. Well, I was going to say, what's it like at the sharp end of this? Like, are you you getting a lot of quite grumpy people going, how can it be four times more expensive? No, I must say that this is very similar to what we were facing at time of COVID. People are educated, they are aware of the situation. Uh, We don't make any promises. We are very upfront. So, uh, no, we don't get grumpy people. Obviously, uh, obviously you're upset if you don't get your your belongings for a long time but they don't blame us yeah, <laughs> they, they know the situation they would, yeah. it's the situation is quite well known worldwide no it one is. can say they haven't heard about this that's true especially if they listen to the agenda or dubai i 103.8 um, thank you so much for You're joining us it's always interesting to get an update on the situation and and i hadn't realized that people would be booking their summer shipments quite so soon but of course if you want to plan ahead it makes perfect sense uh, stefania sierra general manager for dasa international movers thank you so much for your time thank you absolute pleasure to have you in and of course like i said that story we will be keeping a very close eye on it indeed this is the agenda on dubai i 103.8 the uae's number one talk radio station you're listening here to the agenda and i have good news for you it, I mean, it is good news. It's not like immediately good news, but we're going to get another bridge. Uh, Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority, as ever, working hard to reduce congestion in the Emirate as the population grows. And they've actually just recently unveiled plans to build a two-lane bridge. It'll connect Sheikh Zayed Road with Dubai Harbour. To properly visualise it, you have to sort of look at a map, really. It's quite difficult for me to explain it. But I can tell you where Dubai Harbour is if you weren't clear. It's sort of the area between Palm Jumeirah and Blue Waters. It's got uh, two cruise terminals, a marina and loads of towers. And they keep on building more. I can't see them from here, but they keep on building more. Somebody told me, don't quote me on this, and I can't remember which way the numbers go. It's either 24 or 42. <laughs> Shows the dyslexic and the numbers in my head. Um, but they are building that many, either 24 or 42. I know there's a big difference, but lots of very tall skyscrapers on what is essentially reclaimed land. So if you're in the Western or the Meridian looking out towards what used to be the sea. Um, now you're going to have, there's, there's skyscrapers. Those are the ones they're building. That counts as the Dubai Harbour. Anyway, the, this bridge is going to be 1,500 metres long and it's going to cut average travel times to that waterfront district from 12 minutes to three. And it's all part of a partnership with the harbour owners who are called Shamal Holding. We wanted to find out more about it. So we spoke to Hamad Al-Shehi. Now he is Director of Roads for the Roads and Transport Authority. And he talked me through the plan. So the newly announced road, which is um, access to Dubai Harbour, which is an elite development, which is considered a touristic attraction, ledger, as well as residential attraction, is to provide an access two bridges that's directly leading towards the development of Dubai Harbour from Sheikh Zayed Road directly. The bridge will be consisting of two lanes of each direction, leading from Sheikh Zayed Road, going through several roads such as Al-Falak Street, King Salman, Ibn Abdul Aziz Street, going through to Dubai Harbour access as a free flow direction from Sheikh Zayed Road. And so what's that going to mean for congestion in that area? Okay, looking at the area where Dubai Harbour is, we're talking about Dubai Harbour, JBR, Dubai Marina, and the main roads such as Sheikh Zayed Road. So these bridges, which is going to provide the seamless free flow uh, access to Dubai Harbour, 
will actually relieve some traffic from the intersection from the road below it, giving the residents and the road users easy access directly to Dubai Harbour. Now, of course, everyone gets very excited about these road announcements, but they do take some time to build. Do you know when construction is likely to start and when it's likely to be finished? The construction is planning to be started uh, in 2024 and will take two years to be com- uh, completed. I mean, that, that is a very short amount of time when you think about the sort of the scale of what is actually going to be built there, which is considerable. Can I ask... Um, the reasons for prioritising Dubai Harbour. I I mean, obviously, you have to balance the various needs and the various sort of congestion pinch points around the city. Are you expecting Dubai Harbour to get particularly busy in the future, for example? So RTA, in in collaboration with all the stakeholders, especially developer, in this case, Shamal Holding, has prioritised this bridge due to the future plans that's coming within Dubai Harbours and the expected improvement and development that's going to be there in the next year. So we have to go aligned. We have to improve the infrastructure and align with the development that's going to be within Dubai Harbour as an attraction in order for this to align with the traffic volumes that's going to be heading towards Dubai Harbour. I wonder how you guys go about choosing what type of road junction, what type of facility to put in, you know, whether it's better to do a tunnel or whether it's better to do a bridge, you know, how you figure out the best I suppose, equation when it comes to roads? So to answer your question in a simple way, it goes two, two ways. First of all, traffic needs, what we need in terms of traffic, how many lanes, how, how many junctions, etc. And the other side is the technicalities and how can we construct these roads, bridges and tunnels. So there is no a certain equation, but ha- go through a lot of engineering and design and value engineering to, to us to reach the final product and design for the roads that we are going to construct. That is the Director of Roads for Dubai's Roads and Transport Authority, Hamad Al-Sheikhi. Uh, fantastic to get him on the radio talking us through uh, their latest announcement, which is that bridge between Sheikhside Road and Dubai Harbour. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. And we're going to turn our attention now to a study. I mean, I suppose it suggests that something that many of us already knew, namely that money doesn't buy you happiness. Uh, But we're taking an interesting sort of approach to it because researchers say that people living in remote indigenous communities are as satisfied with their lives as their Western peers, despite having very little money. Now, the academics spoke to hundreds of people from Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Guatemala and the Western Highlands of Scotland. Let's find out more. I'm joined on the line by Earth Systems Science Professor Eric Gilbraith. He's the lead author of the study at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, Professor Galbraith, tell me, um, why did you go about uh, go, uh, researching this particular topic? What led you down this path? Well, so thanks for the question, Georgia. There's There's been a lot of research over the years on subjective well-being, so basically how satisfied people say they are with their lives. And it's tended to show that people in wealthier countries are more satisfied. And this has just been a very strong result that people have shown over and over again for decades. But then this suggests that people with next to no money should all be miserable. Um, and that didn't sound right to us. So we wanted to set out and, and just test this hypothesis by going to as many diverse communities as we could manage to, where people use very little money in their daily lives and, and see how they were feeling. So we asked them exactly the same question um, that's been asked in many other global surveys. And we were... Somewhat surprised to see just how highly many of them rated their lives when, when asked the same question, even though they essentially have, you know, extremely little money um, on a day-to-day basis. So what were the, the key findings? It, it's sort of eight out of ten for happiness, that type of thing. 
That's right. So the, the question is, is, is basically all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is completely unsatisfied and 10 is completely satisfied? And we had a range of responses. You know, not all of these communities are, are living well. A lot of them are marginalized and disenfranchised and, and, and life is hard for some of them. Many of them identify as indigenous, um, but they're all living close to nature. And uh, but a number of them reported very high values, and some of them, I think uh, four of the ones you mentioned there, that there were 19 in total, four of them uh, reported being um, just as satisfied as people in the wealthiest northern European countries that we usually point to as being at the top of the world happiness report. Yeah, did you find out what it was that was making them happy? Was there a sort of second question of why? I wish there had been. So actually, we kind of piggybacked, you know, because the logistics of this, you know, getting out to interview 3000 people in these extremely remote communities and doing so in a way which is sensitive and, you know, not barging in as a team of Western researchers that's going to disrupt everything. This is very complicated. And so we piggybacked on a larger study, which was actually looking at climate change impacts. And so we just kind of slipped this question in there. Um, but I would love to get more at that in, in follow-up work. I mean, but that always the happens. Been... There, you know, one, one, <laughs> research, one research paper always leads to another one. That's the one thing you can be sure of. <laughs> That's right. That's what keeps us in, in our jobs. It does. Well, exactly so. I, I mean, it is intriguing. You had people like, so we often talk about the world's most happiest country being Finland. It's something they're very, very proud of, despite it being really cold there and dark quite a lot. <laughs> And yet, what's so? And yet, it, partly they have an amazing welfare state. They they trust each other. But there's a lot of talk about trust, which is quite interesting. And yet, some of the people, but of course, they are rich too. And part of the reason why this is so surprising is that many of the people you spoke to were living on, you know, was it as little as a dollar a day? That type of money. That's right. Yes, very small amounts of money. But you know, they're able to get what they need from nature. In most cases, so so they're not necessarily poor and that they're struggling to survive. They're they're actually living quite well within their their way of living, and those features you mentioned, you know, the the strong society bonds, the the trust, you know, by the reports I've, from the people who visited all the communities, those are, are are doing very well in these in these places. So so people are strongly connected to each other. You know, they may spend lots of time singing together, hanging out. You know, they have they have strong bonds and they feel supported by the community. Um, so in that way, you know, it may be similar to the things that that make people happy in Finland. We look at the money and we think, oh, it must be the money that's explaining it. But it seems from these results that the other effects are much stronger than we've thought in the past. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And, and a, we love a good news story here on the agenda. Too often, uh, what makes the headlines is sort of negative news. So we like a good news story. Um, and today that has been provided to us by you. So thank you very much indeed, Professor Eric Galbraith, lead author of this study. He's an Earth Systems Science Professor at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, really loving people's messages that are coming through. Alistair says it's because they don't have phones and they have good relationships. Al, thank you for that message. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.